have the wonderful privilege of reading the Bible uh, for us this morning. And our first passage comes from Exodus chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And now reading from John chapter 1 verses 16 to 18. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in peace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And our third reading is from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might, not, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, hi, it's uh, Rowan here from the Garrison Church in St. Philip's. It's great to be with you today as we look at our next stop, the book of Exodus. Let's pray as we begin. God, would you teach us, free us, and cause us to love and obey you? Amen. I don't know if you've ever felt stuck or constrained. I certainly have. There's many things that can constrain us, financial issues, vocational opportunities. Perhaps you've had an oppressive boss, miserable relationship, ongoing health issues, a recurring debt or being priced out of the market. But then there's also inner demons, isn't there? Anger and lust or any kind of sin, perhaps suffocating anxiety or toxic habits. Toxic habits. Theologian Andrew Ollerton writes this. We can spend much of our life pondering escape routes and exit strategies that will lead to increased happiness. We humans are on a quest for freedom. We want to be free. We look for escape routes and exit strategies, an exodus even. And freedom is a bigger idea in the opening section of Exodus, our third stop in God's mega story. Exodus means exit or way out. And that's what we'll be looking at today. And where have we come from? How do we get here? Well, the first stop was creation. In the first week, we saw God made the world. He loves the world. It's a good world. And he wants it back. He wants to bless what he has justly judged. In the second week, last week, Justin introduced to Abraham. God sets the course of how he will bless what he has judged. God promises Abraham three things, a people, a place, and blessing. Well, this stop is the Exodus. We now have the people from Abraham, but no place, and they are under slavery. But this week we meet a towering figure in the Bible story. We meet Moses, and he's huge in the Bible story. But in the Exodus, Moses isn't actually the main character. God is, and God chooses Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. So the questions we ask ourselves as we stop at the Exodus on our journey through the Bible are these. What were they freed from? How were they freed? And what are they freed for? Let's begin with, what were they freed from? Exodus opens telling us that Abraham's descendants not only survived, but they've they've thrived in Egypt. They were a populace, enough to threaten the absolute rule of a godlike pharaoh, a pharaoh that is who knew not Joseph. And under threat, he acts ruthlessly. Don't all despots. Pharaoh does two things. He enslaves the Hebrews and he instructs the midwives to kill every Israelite boy born. It's forced labour and infanticide. It's, it's an awful read. In chapter 2, we read, The Israelites under this slavery groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. We can easily feel abandoned 
when we are stuck. But God is not indifferent to our plight. He's not indifferent to the plight of his people then, and he's not indifferent to the plight of his people now. Exodus goes on, God heard the groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. Here we see God's divine attentiveness. And it's worth remembering that when you feel trapped. See, God is a God who is attentive, he cares, but he also intervenes. In verse 24 of chapter 2 we read that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. And remembering here is not merely just a calling to mind, it's called action. This is divine intervention when we might think that God is powerless. See, when Israel thought nothing was happening, that is precisely when God was preparing his dramatic rescue mission. Well, what are we free from? See, the story of the Exodus is actually our story. See, what plights are you facing? What tough situations and negative cycles do you long to be liberated from? Because God cares about your situation. And more, God has come to liberate us from the worst plight of the cruelest master. Jesus in John's Gospel says to the Pharisees, he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. See, we are slaves to something far bigger than Pharaoh, far crueler than he as a tyrant. For this bondage can, can weigh us down turns us in on ourselves with guilt and shame. And it kills us in the end, Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus goes on to say this, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. We'll come back to this. Well, secondly, how are they freed? God calls an unlikely character. He raises up Moses. Moses at 75, has his own eventful back story, dripping with salvation symbolism. Born under the death threat of the Hebrew male babies, yet by God's providence, he's spared and he's raised in Pharaoh's household. He is rejected and opposed from his own people, yet he is also chosen and set apart for God's mission of redemption. He himself feels weak. He's a simple man with a simple life shepherding a flock. Yet God will perform signs and wonders through him to deliver and to shepherd Israel. God calls Moses from a burning bush around a mountain called Mount Sinai. We read about it in Exodus 3. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses is given a commission. He's deliver 
to deliver God's message to Pharaoh, let my people go. But you'll see that Moses is reluctant to go. He does everything, actually, to try and wiggle his way out of this calling. But God assures him that he himself will be with him. He reveals to him his name. I will be who I will be. The way of saying to Moses and to the Israelites that God will act in accord with his character. And it's worth noticing that throughout this story, and indeed through the whole Bible, God always uses a cast of unlikely characters. God uses messy paths, present insecurities and weaknesses to fulfil and to further his mission. Well, God confronts the gods. This is how he frees his people. As you can imagine, Pharaoh is not keen on the idea of letting go of the Israelites. The economic benefit would be disastrous for him. And so he refuses to acknowledge Moses' God and escalates the burden of Israel. And what we see is a clash of two powers begin. The story of the ten plagues is a highly patterned section. In it we see the confrontation escalate. Moses delivers a message, Pharaoh hides his heart, and then God sends a plague. And behind the obvious physical plagues, the, the frogs, the gnats, the boils, etc., is actually a, a spiritual confrontation going on. This is Israel's God versus the gods of Egypt. And each plague is actually an affront to how Egypt thought the world worked. It was a, a defrocking or an exposing of their gods. But it was also an affront to who they thought was in charge. God is in charge, not the pharaohs. The plagues undermined the myth that the pharaohs brought order and peace like a god does. Suddenly the emperor had no clothes. Now it's easy for us to think that this is ancient people with ancient distant beliefs about gods and idols, etc. But lest we think that we'd never been given up to such foolish things, remember that we all the time set up alternate sources of authority and trust in our lives other than God. Counterfeit gods. These things promise us happiness. It might be family and children. It might be sex and relationships, work and career, money and possessions, health and exercises. All these things are good in and of themselves, but they can't bear the weight of everything. As one author put it, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. God frees us from them. Well, finally, the clash with Pharaoh escalates to the final and devastating plague we know as the Passover. Thirdly, how God frees his people. God crosses them over from death to life. And he does this in two parts. Firstly, through the Passover, Israel are saved through the Lamb. The tenth plague is that the angel of death will strike the firstborn in all Egyptian households. 
Israel are powerless too to save themselves. But God intervenes with a gracious means of escape and he provides for them a way out. The event requires a spotless lamb to be sacrificed. It's blood daubed on the doorposts with a hyssop branch. And the angel of death would pass over the homes marked with blood. They were saved by a, a substitute, a lamb. And this event is still celebrated as Passover. So inside, Israelites would participate in a feast which was to be eaten on the go. This feast involves tastes and smells and touch. It's sensory reminders of God's saving work. Well, the angel of death passes over. The firstborn in Egypt dies and Israel is redeemed from slavery through Passover lamb. Finally, Pharaoh relents. Well, secondly, there's a crossing over saved through the waters. See, Pharaoh relents, but it's short-lived. Pharaoh changes his mind. Bullies often do that. Pharaoh had his military force hotly pursue Israel. And soon enough, Israel are caught between an army on one side and a stretch of water known as the Red Sea on the other. The Red Sea is probably a stretch of water in the northern end of the Suez Gulf. Once again, they are powerless to save themselves. But God intervenes with a way out. The waters part and the Israelites walk through and Pharaoh's army drowns, leading them out to the other side. They have crossed over into a whole new existence as God's people, liberated, redeemed by the mighty hand of God. And how are we free? Well, remember that the Exodus story is our story also. See, Jesus has come to set us free from sin, but how? Well, in John's Gospel, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus deliberately chooses to go to Jerusalem at Passover. And in doing so, the significance is clear. Just as the substitute lamb died for the deliverance of Israel, so Jesus died as our substitute for the deliverance from sin and death. And Jesus, the night before his death, too, shared a Passover meal. And at that meal, Jesus takes it and reappropriates the meal. The taste and the smells, the touch, the sensory experience of the bread and the wine point to God's saving work through his, Jesus' death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul explicitly says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. What is our exit strategy? See, we need a, a substitute to break the chains of sin and guilt. We need someone to lead the way to cross over into a brand new existence. And we have a new and better Moses, and his name is Jesus.
Well, finally, what are they freed for? We've seen what they're freed from, how they're freed. What are they freed for? Well, this occupies the other half of the book of Exodus. See, Moses not only saves his people, but he makes a covenant with them and gives them a new law beginning with the famous Ten Commandments. Well, firstly, they were freed for a relationship with him. This is the covenant in Exodus 19. In my reading this week, I came across a new term. It's called a DTR conversation, a define the relationship conversation. It's what happens in a relationship when it moves from hello to we're a thing. I had a DTR conversation with Naomi back in 2001. It was painfully awkward. Are we friends? Are we dating? Are we boyfriend and girlfriend? Well, God initiates in his covenant a DTR with his people. He's defining the relationship. A covenant is a binding agreement based on vows that create a new relationship, making those involved as close as a family. Listen to it in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, the covenant here is a, it's a mutual commitment. God will make these people his treasured possession. They will love and obey him. And from that place, they will be a blessing to the whole world. Well, secondly, flourishing the law, Exodus 20. In the context of loving relationships, there is always clear boundaries which ensure safety and freedom. We understand this. It's interesting with Apple, for instance, in their recent operating systems, they've introduced the screen time limit function. It limits the amount of times we have on our devices. It is a recognition that we, to flourish, we need limits. And parents do this kind of thing all the time. Well, God, too, establishes boundaries. But these boundaries always come after he has established the relationship. See, the law was never meant to be a DIY rescue plan, nor was it the means to make ourselves acceptable to God. Rather, now that God's people have been set free, they are to live free. In the Old and New Testament, grace always precedes obedience. This is picked up in the name law. Law means teaching, it means guidance. And the Ten Commandments and all the law were meant to set them apart as a people, to make them distinct, but they were also there to help them to flourish. Jesus summed up the law in this way. He said we are to love God and to love our neighbour. Love for God, love for neighbour. Jesus himself embodied these laws. He came not to abolish them, but he tells us to fulfil them, which means that we read our Bibles backwards as well as forwards. 
Some points of the law are fulfilled and are no longer applicable. Other parts are there and still stand as guidance and principles. But others remain commands and, and carry judgment. We should see God's limits as life-enhancing, leading to flourishing and freedom, with a warning that should drive us to his saving love. Well, lastly, his presence, the tabernacle or tent. With great detail, God instructs Moses how to build a tabernacle, a tent. A tent is the promise of God's dwelling amongst his people. Its details and precision of furniture and and the garments symbolise God's holiness. How can a holy God dwell amongst a sinful people? The sacrificial system established in the Old Testament is the answer to that question. But to concentrate on the detail is to neglect the significance. And the significance is this. That God wants to dwell among his people. The wonder of the mega story is not merely God's benefits. We don't treat God instrumentally for his gifts. The wonder of God's saving work is not merely liberation. It's that we have been saved from slavery so that we can enjoy God dwelling amongst his people. We get him. We get him. In John 1, Jesus is described as the word became flesh and made his dwelling. He tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, what are we freed for? God has given us an exodus. He's freed us from our sins and we are freed for him. We in the West can tend to think of freedom as freedom from constraints, limitations and oppression. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs sums up the problem. The 21st century has left us with a maximum of choice and a minimum of meaning. Unless we grasp what we are free for, we will only find ourselves falling into new types of bondage, searching for meaning. Jesus has come to set us free that we may have life. Our master is no longer sin. Jesus has freed us. We can live for a new master, one who promises us fullness of life. Paul picks this up also in Romans 6. He writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We have been freed from sin and we are freed for God. He continues, So do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that through Jesus, you have freed us from the slavery of sin. 
by his death as our substitute in our place. And you've set us free to live for you. May we live for you and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.